Welcome to Lit Health. I'm Tracy Granzik, your host and senior director of the Center for Healthcare Narratives at the MedStar Institute for Quality and Safety, along with editor-in-chief of Please See Me, an online literary magazine seeking to elevate the voices and health-related stories of vulnerable populations and those who care for them. On Lit Health, we'll be lighting a fire underneath the status quo of healthcare through interviews with authors, healthcare leaders, and policymakers, all working to create a healthcare environment that is equitable and transparent and that welcomes the needs of every patient, especially our vulnerable populations, including the mentally ill, people of color, women who feel they are still at risk in our current health system, the elderly, and anyone who feels bias or the isms affect their health or quality of life. Join us to stoke the fire. We want to hear the health-related stories from our listeners on both sides of the bed rail, the courtroom, and the aisle. Today on Lit Health, we're talking with Clarenda Rux, a mom of three and an accomplished actress, writer, and a special needs advocate. She began her journey as a patient advocate 33 years ago, before it was even recognized as a role in the healthcare ecosystem as it is today. Her plays have toured extensively and been produced at many equity theaters, and her work is published by Applause Theater Books, The Canyon Review, and The Coachella Review. Her screenplay, Family Linen, was a finalist for the NYWITF Lab Series for Women Over 40, sponsored by Meryl Street. Her first play, From My Grandmother's Grandmother Unto Me, a National Endowment for the Arts grant recipient, just received its 13th production. She's an alumna of the National Winter Playwright Retreat. She received her MFA in Writing for Performance at UC Riverside Palm Desert, where Clarinda and I first crossed paths. And she is a member of the Actors' Equity Association, SAG-AFTRA, and a Southern California ambassador for the Dramatist Guild of America. She teaches the Advanced Actors Workshop at LA City College. Her family divides their time between California and North Carolina, and she is becoming increasingly sure that greed is the problem. Clarinda, welcome to Lit Health. Thank you so much for taking time out of that incredibly busy schedule to be with us today. So many accomplishments in the arts. I I know that one of your greatest accomplishments for your heart is your daughter, Clara. And I'm so excited to have you on Lit Health to talk about Clara and your work as a patient advocate. Can you tell listeners a little bit about Clara and how you became an advocate before it was kind of like the thing to do? We were. Well, Clara was born in 1988. So that was two years before um, George H.W. Bush signed the Disabilities Act. So we were kind of cutting edge. I was a young actress and I was a member of the Screen Actors Guild and Actors Equity Association. So I had really good insurance. And when Clara was born, you know, at that time, I thought it was a, a totally, uh, you know, typical birth. I had a midwife, but I was at a hospital. Now I know that her APGAR was low, but she latched on and breastfed and we went home in 24 hours and I was young and healthy and there was no concerns. And uh, but then she started to miss some of her her milestones, uh, sitting up, pushing all those things were delayed that, you know, she had that in the beginning, they called it developmental delay. And then we started to see, a, you know, just plethora of doctors and specialists trying to figure out what's going on. Because some delays with um, a little bit of therapy, the child will catch up. 
and and so that's why that that zero to three and really zero to five is such a critical time for children in terms of receiving a therapy if they if there are you know uh, cognitive delays, speech delays, physical delays, all that stuff. Three months, zero to three months, and zero to five months. No, not zero to three years, and and really zero to five years, and then they say after eight, the, the brain, some of the you know things start to close down. That's why children up to I think it's age eight, maybe maybe as far as twelve, can learn as many languages as they're exposed to, and then it starts to you know. So you need to get in there and do the therapy. And she had one thing that we found. You know, many things that she has, many. Um, markers of certain syndromes but she never had enough markers to be in a syndrome you know like down so you know we tested for many many things all the known syndromes no she but she has a lot of markers of autism you know she didn't like to she had she was tactically defensive sensitive to touch she really didn't like um having her feet off the ground so swinging so the therapy for that is sensory integration therapy and a lot of that is like brushing with a light brush to get used to touch, putting the hands in the in the beans and swinging. It was all very challenging for her. And she had a super short attention span. But luckily, we dived in because somewhere I knew to ask questions. Both, both of my parents are I'm the daughter of two college professors. So I was raised in a household where you, you know, my dad used to say question authority, comma, respectfully. So I would go to these doctors and ask a lot of questions and push back. And they, I thought, put a lot on me. They'd say, well, how does she compare to? And I'm like, this is my first baby. She's she's fine. She's on my hip. We're going. So this is normal to me. So you're the one with all the initials after your name. You need to tell me where she's not meeting the milestones. And, you know, they kind of get their back up a little bit that I would push back. And I'm like, no, no, this is your job. You need to be the one. I'm going to tell you what I see, but you know, it's not my job to know all of this. You are the one. I've been to college to be an actress, and you're the one that needs to know that. So I was very much always from the beginning an an advocate for her. And I used to say I was a sweet Southern girl who never cursed and never raised my voice. And I made awesome iced tea. Then I had Clara, and that did not really work. Um, and so I had to get a lot more of what my old daddy would call gumption. And I had to speak up and speak out and push back and nudge and, you know, make the phone calls. A lot of people would say to me, well, how can you be an actress and, and you have this special needs child? And I would think to myself, how can you not? Because I had a lot of free time, also known as unemployment for actors. But when I worked, I made good money and I had good benefits because of the unions. So I was able to go to the top specialist in Atlanta and get the very best therapist. I would call them. They say, oh, there's a waiting list. You know, you, the, the really top therapist in occupational therapy at that time in Atlanta was a woman named Jackie Odo. And they're like, well, she's got a long list. And I just kept calling. I kept calling and saying, oh, I can take a cancellation. And if they would say, you know, three o'clock on a Thursday, I would say I can be there because I had flexibility. A lot of my rehearsals and stuff were at night. And I, I just made it work. 
And um, I always had a lot of women helping me, a lot of good caregivers, so that when I did get a job, I could work. And in that way, it was just like a lot of juggling and a lot of logistics, and you need to put together a care team. And I had that idea from the beginning not to whitewash it, not to engage in magical thinking. I met a lot of parents of special needs kids early on who were talking about they're going to totally overcome everything and go to college and drive a car and get married and all that. And somewhere around two, when I got some really definitive testing, the the gaps were not going to close all the way. And and this was going to be a lifelong care situation. I did not sit down. I did not cry. I thought, okay, well then what can I do to give her the best life? How can I do that? And I just pushed on. So what do you think was the most challenging from that point on getting and finding the care that Clara needed? Well, I would say a lack of enough services. You know, I was an educated white woman in Atlanta with the union insurance card. I had some access but there's not enough. I thought a lot about people that were, you know, English as second language, you know, didn't have the resources that I had. I had a house and a car and, you know, money in the bank and I could scoot around and say, yes, I can take Thursday at 3.30, but what about the people who couldn't? So I think the ch- the most challenging thing was was the the lack of care. I was always able to find her a daycare situation that would accept her. You know, not every private daycare situation before you start into the public school system is going to take a special needs child who requires extra. Then once I got into the, the you know, the public schools, you have to negotiate with them with the IEP. That's the Individualized Education Plan. And I know that there are some parents that, you know, just dread these meetings because the school is the school system, not pointing at any individual school, but the system is set up in this way of please don't sue me. And the parents are often in the position they want the most therapy, the most services, the most for their child. And it's about that balance. Well, we'll give you two hours. Well, she's really going to benefit from five hours. And so it was just back and forth, back and forth. And the way that I did it a lot is I would try to assemble a team, an advocacy team. I didn't have that name for it then, but I know what it is now. And I would bring my private speech therapist or my private OT into the school setting and just have them sit in on the meeting because they would speak the language of the people at the meeting. They could converse with the school speech therapist who would say, oh, well, we're only seeing one word utterances. And my speech therapist say, well, when we're in session, I'm seeing this and this is what works for me. And I found that mostly women in this business, they were able to talk to each other. And I could step back because sometimes a mother's voice is like a waterfall and it just puts uh, doctors and practitioners and uh, administrators at schools to sleep because they think, yeah, 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 we know better than you. So I found assembling a team was good. Of course, there's just never enough services for special needs kids. And let me just say that as we went along in, in the different markers, like she has ataxia, which is the slight tremor, and she has a slight intentional tremor. She has an awkward gait. She 
has, uh, you know, limited speech, but she can speak. And it was only years later when I had my sons, there's 12 years difference between Clara and her brother, Frank. And when I had Frank, then I had Frank and then I had Gus two and a half years later. So those pregnancies were followed so closely because that by that time I had moved from Atlanta to L.A. to continue my acting career. And we and Clara was being seen at UCLA. That's the big dogs, you know, and we were at mental retardation research there with a guy named Steve Cedarbaum, who's a brilliant genius, but no bedside manner. And as I was, this is often the case with the, with the smartest people, you know, and I would always say they would have a woman with them. They'd have the really smart woman. He had this gal named Michelle Fox with him, who was kind of like his translator. I laugh about it. Now. I think about if you have ever seen Key and Peele. And the, the, he did Obama and the anger translator yeah. to call his assistant, Michelle Fox, his, his, you know, translator, just, you know, he, he would say, you're so old, <laughs> you know, when I was pregnant. But anyway, they followed both of these pregnancies with a new DNA pool. I had a divorce, which often happens with special needs divorce because this is such a stress. But I always say she saved me from from uh, bad choices. And uh Anyhow, the services there were really, really good. It's always a challenge to get the different people to communicate. The speech to talk to the OT, the OT to talk to the the physical therapist and what's working. Um, so when I started at UCLA, that, that was a challenge. They were, They had really good research, really good doctors, but the services weren't as integrated. When I was in Atlanta, she was at Scottish Rite Children's Hospital. And that's where we saw Jackie Otto and a whole team, speech, PT, everything. And they would have this one little meeting once a month. This is going to sound crazy, but once a month, every child in their care, they had a five-minute meeting with the whole team. Everybody who saw that child, speech, physical therapy, occupational therapy, any specialist, they all did it for five minutes. And it was amazing what they could accomplish in that short amount of time, just talking about what was working for them. So I would say the biggest challenge in any care situation is communication. Yeah. And that seems to carry through healthcare on the whole, that communicating is 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 something that really can be the downfall to good care, or it could really contribute to good care. Exactly. And you, the people that are in charge, the administration and the people, you can have a great meeting with them. You can make up a document. You can make an agreement. You can figure out a plan. If it's not implemented all the way down through that direct care staff, you can have a beautiful piece of paper. I've had so many beautiful IEPs with the schools, you know, that it, it, it's about the follow through. So I think we should let listeners too know that Claire is how old now? Clara is 33 years old and she's doing amazing. Once I figured out when I had my other sons, I was like, oh, she's 18 months. I could kind of see the moment when Frank passed her. And I had always thought she was, you know, according to the doctors, they were saying, oh, she's between two and three years. But it's just all this, you know, kind of uh, therapy that we got her that so that she could get her skills up. But mentally, that's where she is, 18 months. And all the other stuff that we've gotten her up to about a four-year-old level, some five-year-old level, she's, she's, she's still making progress. That's the amazing thing. She learned during COVID and these shutdowns, which I was just frantic about not being able to go see her, 
she totally adjusted to the expectations because she was she was in a really good home. Real, they did such a good job. That staff. My first two homes weren't as successful as that third one. So great, but you know the expectation was that we had to wear a mask and you can't go get in mom's car. So I used to go get my son's lunch and take it to her from the high school because it was all. We remember the beginning of COVID. We didn't know what was going on, so I couldn't bring a homemade meal. His sandwich from the high school was in plastic. So I'd go to the high school, get his sandwich, he'd eat with home with me, and I would take it to her and it had a chocolate milk in it. And I would put it down. She'd come out and get it. She I totally, her attention span increased from maybe a 15-second attention span in the beginning when, when we were doing physical therapy when she was, you know, eight months old and trying to put a peg in a hole, you know, and then she'd just look away. She'd be done. Now, Clara and I do Zooms that are 10, 15 minutes long now. We talk to the dog. I show her pictures of the house and this and that. And, you know, I read her her books. I tell her stories. And she sits there and she is engaged. And I thought, oh, I'm always going to need to live right next to Clara. I never can go anywhere too far. And the people at the home kept saying, you know, you, we got this. We got this. And they did. And they do. And this time has proved to me that Clara is living her best life. She has friends. I was just lucky, Tracy, in the beginning to have these wonderful women, these therapists who would, as I would push back on the doctors to get that prescription because I needed their signature. I needed them to sign a paper that said she really needs, you know, six hours a week. You know, I would get that golden ticket from them. Because I had to to get that ticket with them. But then the therapist, in turn, started to push back on me. And that's really uh, the story of Spit Like a Big Girl, the play that I wrote about it. Because I, the big girl of first act, where my dad and mom professors asked questions, had a fun childhood, privileged in terms of education and time, not in terms of money. But I do think I had a privileged childhood in that way growing up with my parents. And then I have Clara and the world shifts. And now I have this big responsibility and I have to rise to the occasion. And she needs to live her best life. She needs to become the big girl who can brush her teeth. That's where we get the title, brush your teeth and spit into the sink like a big girl. And we had a therapist early on who did zero to three work with the kids, zero to three, identifying developmental delays, getting them in the system, getting them healthcare, getting them to the right school, right specialist. She also did the long arc and said, you know, Clarinda, this is our goal. Group living. You're not going to live forever. She needs to be in a group home. It'll be best for her and best for you. And kind of go, hey, sure, that sounds good. And what I learned was, you know, of course they were right. And even as educated as I am and all the advantages that I've had, I still kind of thought, yeah, she'd probably still be with me. That's an emotional decision. But this is how, and this is really the journey that we take and spit like a big girl is just as parents of typically developing children have that anxiety of their child leaving and going to college. And once I got it framed in my head of this group home is going to be like Clara's college, 
then I could, I could get with that, you know, because that was my parents were all about. Of course, you're going to college. You're going to go. You could get an education. That's what people do. How old was Clara when she went to the first? The first group home, she was 19 years old, which in the world of special needs is so young. There was never anyone in any of her homes under 35. They were all in their 50s and 60s. And I started to notice because I want Clara involved in everything. Special Olympics was a huge part of our life. You have to be eight to start Special Olympics. And I was down there with bells on and physician form signed. There's only so many activities just due to liability and stuff that Clara can participate in. And it meant so much to her. It was so joyous, so many friends. And I would see, I'd start to see on Saturday mornings when I would take her to swimming or, um, you know, they did bocce ball. They had all kind of different events. And I started to see the 75-year-old woman and the 55-year-old son. And the old woman was bent over. And I could, because I am an actress and a writer and I have that, ability of empathy and noticing details, I started to think, okay, this is what the therapists are talking to me about. This is the situation that you don't want to get in because he's not living his best life. The son who's 55, who's, you know, Down syndrome or, or, um, you know, MR, whatever he has. And the mother, you can see just way down from the, the 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 struggle of it, then the stress of raising a special needs child. And I thought, okay, I don't want to make that choice. I think that, that if I pursue my, my acting, my writing, my career, and I can assemble this care team, I'm giving Clara her best life because I have the I'm a happier person. I have the energy to attend to her. It always used to, in the beginning, especially they'd want to get me in a group. They'd want to get me in a group of parents and talk about special needs and how hard it was. And I attended some, you know, I attended some for a while and invariably they'd want to elect me president. And I'd say, wait, I'm just treading water here myself. You can't make me president. You know, she's five, you know, what do you mean? And I get it. It is hard. But somewhere, I guess from my old daddy, I got that that gumption, that pushback, that ability to question. And um, I say in the play, never say die. I just won't hush. Yeah. So you can tell for the listeners who have not, you know, are not familiar with Spit Like a Big Girl, that is an amazing piece of work that you created and in her honor and, and in your honor for all that you've done not only to take care of her, but to educate the caregivers in your orbit and the audiences that come to see Spit Like a Big Girl. So it, first describe it. Tell, tell. What it is. It's, a, it's a play, a solo play that I wrote, and it premiered at the Rubicon Theater in Ventura, California in uh, 2009. And it was a long time in the making. I had done I studied with Spalding Gray, the famous monologuist when I was young. And so I was always doing these monologues and doing different festivals and stuff. And then in 2009, I got together with a really great producer at Rubicon and a great director. And we put it together and and worked with a dramaturg and really made it a play. And the thing that they helped me with is just to organize the ideas of the story. The first act was all about my parents, my father and growing up and you know, having that grit and that spit myself. And then the second act is all about 
dealing with Clara and, and the struggles and learning to let go and acceptance, you know, because it is the hardest thing to let go of any child and let them grow up. But a special needs child is is extremely difficult. And then word got around. We did some marketing and stuff that, you know, nurses would come, therapists would come. And one day I was doing it and the I came out the stage door and there was an older man waiting there for me. And he was a doctor and he just had tears in his eyes. And he said, you made me think. You made me think about the way that I talk to mothers. He was a pediatrician there in the town. And, and I said, well, good. I've had a great day's work. And, and then, uh, you know, there I've toured it and done, done several things. I would probably say my best day doing that show was I had a bunch of nurses come. I was doing it in Nashville, Tennessee. And some nurse came backstage and she said, listen, listen, we have a medical school and, and you have to come do grand rounds. And I'm like, Oh, okay. What's that? I didn't know what that was. And so she said, you just come and you just talk about Clara and, you know, your show and just talk and they'll ask questions and everybody's there. So it was like, you know, all of them, auditorium, a lot of young, mostly male doctors, female nurses, pretty much. There was a lot of pharmacy people there, you know, big meeting. And they asked me, so many great questions, but one particular I remember, he said, well, now the testing has advanced. You know, we know pretty much in the room that you have a Clara, that you have a child who is going to be needing more services. And he says, what do you say? Because we know now. And I said, you tell them that there is a girl in California who truly, I was told, she probably will not walk. She, you probably need to institutionalize her. I mean, you have to understand she was born in 88. You know, she's going to be in diapers forever. All these things that she wasn't going to do. All the things she wasn't going to do. And I said, you t- she's living her best life as independent as she could be in a group home. She can brush her teeth and she everything's counting. So she counts and brushes her hair. She washes her own face. I mean, just think about that. As a patient, if you've ever been incapacitated in the hospital, how, you know, if the nurse has to lift up your arm and wash you, it's just a loss of dignity. And that's what I loved about, you know, doing this show and answering questions to people and, you know, have an occupational therapist come and just be rewarded. It's a love letter. This play is a love letter to occupational therapists. I have a whole section in there that I call the Church of Occupational Therapy. I used to be a Methodist. Now I'm devoted to the church of occupational therapy because it works. Breaking it down into steps and slowly, 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 you have to have the patience. In the beginning, when they're young, it's so intense of the therapy and, and you, it's really maybe hard to lose sight of that end goal, that independent living, that group home situation. So I had a lot of factors in the the play. I talk about how to one kind of a magical caregiver, a Chinese lady named Jeannie Chung. And um, she was wonderful. And she and Clara, when I had my sons, you know, and they were little babies, she would come and get Clara, take her to therapy for me, go to doctor's appointments with me. And she was above and beyond special. Then she had, she was diagnosed with, with terminal lung cancer. She never smoked, but she was a marathon runner. I mean, she was in amazing shape. 
And she died at 57. And it was just shocking when Jeannie got this terminal diagnosis. And it was right about timing with her turning 19. And the therapist is saying to me, she needs a group living situation. Clorinda, your house with the two boys, too loud. She needs organization and quiet and everything. And I'm like, well, uh, 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 not my house. But Jeannie's terminal diagnosis forced me to to look into it. And she's the one that said to me, and if you will allow me to be Jeannie for a second, she said, Clarinda, maybe Clara is ready. Maybe this group home will be Clara's college. And I was like, oh my God. And then we did it. Uh, you know, she lost her hair with the chemo. She did all these bouts of chemo. She wanted to see Clara graduate from high school and her daughter get married. And she had these goals as people do when they're terminal. And um, we rode around together. We looked at several group homes. We found one and Jeannie was there when we moved Clara into her first home. And she did live to see her daughter get married. Wow. You know, you can't write the script of your life. And, and <laughs> no. you're talking, you know, all these people have come into your world at the right time, you know, have left your orbit at the, I don't want to say the right time, but at critical points in your journey that really sent you in a different direction. People need to see spit like a big girl. I mean, that's a given. If they haven't already figured out your sense of humor, it just permeates that, that entire show. There's some clips of it on my YouTube channel, so I can give you that for your notes. But I've toured it around. I don't have any, you know, upcoming gates, but I do have a audio, really fine audio recording of it. And I have some, you know, on CD. And so a lot of times if I meet someone and they're telling me about, you know, oh, my sister-in-law and she's just devastated and they've gotten a diagnosis, I'm like, you need this. And I give them. I say, you know, get them a CD of Spit Like a Big Girl because there is hope and there is humor and there is joy and there is love, but it takes a lot of perseverance and asking those questions. Healthcare professionals need to see it because that young student who asked you, what, what do we say to parents? They're not trained in giving bad news. They, they really aren't. And they struggle with that. And you're framing it in a way as, this doesn't have to be bad news. No, it doesn't have to be a death sentence. What it has to be is it might not be the life that you thought your child was going to have and that you, the relationship that you were going to have with this child, but it can be full of joy. You know, my two sons who I love to death, sometimes I talk to my girlfriends and say, oh my gosh, who ever thought that Clara would be the one I worry about the least, you know, because she's really doing so great. There can be joy and you can let go there. And I know all the mothers out there and people worry about abuse. That's a very big topic. Okay. And that is why the 75 year old woman has the 55 year old boy at home with her because she's afraid if she lets him go, somebody's going to be mean to him at his job. You know, somebody's he's going to abuse him. And that is a valid concern. And I understand that. But there also are good people in the world and there are good care homes and good group homes. There aren't enough and we need to do better. But I moved across the country, supposedly for my acting career. I was on a show called In the Heat of the Night. and It went off the air and Carol O'Connor, God rest his soul, lovely man, said, you're funny. Come out here. 
And he did. And he got me an agent. And, you know, so I think I moved across the country for Clara because I got to UCLA and I got hooked into all this care. And the state of California has wonderful services that just were not available in Georgia, where I was uh, living when she was born. You know, there's a lot of great doctors in and around Atlanta, but I'm talking in terms of direct care staff and care homes. They do not have the network that we have in California, which is based on the Lanterman Act, which is a big lawsuit. A bunch of parents got together and and did it. And, um, you know, they kind of reshaped the, the the direction of care homes in California and what's available for the disabled. And they have a system of regional centers that are kind of the, the clearing houses for all the disabled children, hopefully identified between zero and three. They get into the regional center system and then they have connections to these services wherever they live. You know, there's, you know, the the tri-counties is uh, Ventura and up to Santa Barbara. There's North L.A., there's West Side, all over the state. And um, that is an amazing system. Yeah. And, you know, brings up a couple of things for me. It's patient and family engagement. You know, you had to coordinate all this. You had to be like you said, English is your first language, activated, you're educated. So you had a lot going for you. One of the challenges I think in care coordination is no one's going to hand you this stuff. No one was going to put together those dots. It's it's really up to the family is what it sounds. It is. I will say that think, here's how things have gotten better. I used to carry a rolling suitcases with all her papers and all her tests because, you know, if you don't have a copy of that EEG, they're going to want to do another one. And she's tactably defensive and she's going to scream and cry. And I'm going to get upset and she's going to get upset. Here's the thing, all the testing and stuff, she would scream and cry, scream and cry and have a meltdown. And it would be so painful to be there and listen to that and hear your child wailing. And then she would bounce right back. You know, like the dentist was always a big thing. That's another part of spilling a big girl's going to the dentist so hard, you know, and the, she'd bounce right back. Jeannie would take her, they'd get a Coke, their best, but I would have to go home and go to the bed for the rest of the day. You know, I would have to really, it is so emotionally draining and exhausting to have put your child. So anything that I could do, questions that I could ask, if I had those results with me from previous tests and hard copies, you know, if I could save her one needle stick, right? One blood draw. It was worth it for me. So I used to go to all of my doctor's appointments with Clara with a little rolling suitcase. And I had literally every test, every note, you know, uh, treatment notes, all of it going back to her birth plan from before she was born in order chronologically so that if, you know, a doctor would want to order a test and if I had it, then she wouldn't have to go through that. And I just always felt so strongly if I could save her any pain, any needle stick and anything, if I had it with me and I had that copy and they could see it, you know, any amount of legwork, paperwork, phone calling, anything that I could do to save her, I would do it because though she might bounce back after it, I would sometimes have to you know, if she'd had a particularly t- 
tough, you know, session with crying and screaming. And, you know, she and and she didn't understand. You couldn't really explain to her, hey, you know, we're, we're doing this to help you. And a lot of times it was really hard for her to lie very still. So, you know, I've got a scene in the play where I'm, I'm lying on top of her blowing in her face and counting to 10. We found that counting really worked. The, even the hardest thing, the dentist, you know, she had she's had one cavity in her entire life because of my attention to teeth. And um, we could count to 10. And she might be upset. She'd go, one, two, three, you know, and she, she it gave her a in, in a moment of feeling completely out of control where there's going to be a needle stick or whatever's going on by doing that counting, she was able to get a hold of herself and be calm. And then we taught her to say, I calm. And she'd go, <laughs> she wasn't really calm, but in the act of saying it, it would really work. And then we would, we had it like a Pavlov's dog situation. We say tissue and she'd take the tissue and she would, automatically whether she really meant it or not she'd take the tissue and say i remember now <laughs> oh so it was just these tiny little bits of, of of that occupational therapy that dignity of the patient that really helped her through so many stressful situations i mean just think all of us we our heart rate goes up when we go to the doctor you know and so here's a, a person that is not of full faculty and she's trying to wrap her mind around the white coats and the situation. I used to scream at doctors sometimes and say, take off that coat. Do you have to wear that? She used to cry when we turn on Westwood Boulevard. Like she's like, oh, they're going to the bad place, you know? Yeah. Well, she knew. And this is amazing. It really is. There's so many elements of what you're talking about. Dignity of the patient, being so engaged, driving care. I mean, that you, you know, I know you have a full career as, you know, now a professor and an actress and a writer, but you could, health systems would wholly benefit from having you on their patient and family advisory councils, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm not going to stand that bandwagon too long because I know you're really busy, but on a personal level, the skills that you've gained being Clara's advocate, I know we've talked a little bit about this, but they've really transferred over into advocating for care for other family members, correct? Yes. And, you know, my my new saying is God laughs at our plans and you never know what's going to happen. And so I have uh, uh, my mom just passed away last year and she had very tough last five years of her life. And everything that I've been through with Clara helped me to navigate for her. I would say to her, of course, she's a full faculty she was a genius, my mother. And um, I'd say, mother, what is it that you want? And I will try to make that happen for you as your advocate. And I did all her insurance forms for her. I dealt with the doctor. She she got so tired and, you know, feeling weak. And, and just to have that conversation, you know, was upsetting. So I would, it would go with her when I could. And I definitely talked on the phone, emailed there came a certain point and she just said, I'm not doing emails anymore. And I said, okay, you don't have to. That's okay. I asked her, you know, what her goals were. There was one day she got very upset. She'd been through a litany of tests and, you know, we're trying to find some kind of internal bleeding and they just couldn't locate it. And she was feeling weak and faint. And she just stood here and she screamed and she said, I just, just forget and never go back and take a trip around the world. And I said, mother, if that's what you want, 
I can make that happen because you get to choose. Just because they say this is a course of care that they recommend, you do not have to say yes. You get a vote. And I think that dignity of the patient thing is really important. Um, my husband had a very crazy rare thing. He, he got necrotizing fasciitis. A lot of people don't know what that is, but whenever I meet a nurse and I tell them, they go, oh my God, you know, because it's the flesh eating bacteria and people, the typical in doctor speak, let's talk doctor speak, shall we? Uh, in doctor speak, it's a typical outcome is death. The next typical outcome is amputation. My husband is very much alive and he has all his parts. <laughs> um, I like to think that I had a hand in that because I moved quite quickly when the, you know, the situation arose, it just looked like a little rash. And then, you know, just, it just ballooned. The situation just exploded. And then he's in an in ICU fighting for his life. It, it just went boom. It really, <laughs> it just, that, that medical record sharing of information, which is so much better now since Obamacare and electronic records, there was a moment where they had ordered a culture, and I didn't know this. There's a 48-hour culture, and then there's a 72-hour culture, and they're sitting there trying to decide if they're going to amputate his leg in front of me. And I felt like I was in a different place. And and they said, well, I don't know. They said, we just don't know if we can wait you know, for that culture to come back. And I said, but they did a culture on, on Tuesday. This is we're now on Thursday, and he's in intensive care, but they had done a culture at the, you know, the, the first doctor that we went to, we, we were motion picture health screen actors go. And I said, and, and I said, go get that. And I was on the phone going, get me, you know, because I said, you can have that. They're still, they have it. They have the test. And if I hadn't been sitting there, they would have maybe made different decisions. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. With the, you have to have a healthcare spotter, an advocate by your side because for so many reasons, but being aware of what else is going on in the patient's life when the patient is incapacitated, I mean, they can't do it for themselves. The patient was, you know, was, you know, up and about and would go to these doctors. But, you know, if you're feeling bad, if you're feeling weak, if you're not feeling your best and just it's coming at you, all this information to have someone sitting beside you taking notes. If it, if you could have a family member, great. People have different relationships with their family. If you have a friend who's detail, you want that detail-oriented woman. I always say women, 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 we're the best listeners, we're the most organized, you know, find that female friend to go with you. And just sit there. They don't have to say anything. You know, they can just take notes for you because it's a lot coming at you and you're the one that's sick. So it's just, it's really, really helpful having somebody sit there and take notes. I, I tell the story about my husband. When I first started, when we first got married, Clara was five and he started coming with me to meetings and he didn't really know all her history and all the background. You know, now he's as versed in Clara as I am. But in the beginning, he would just come. And so here's this kind of large white guy in a button down shirt. And he would just, I said, you don't have to say anything, just sit there. But I'm telling you, and when she was in the school system, I got more services. He would just come and sit there and look kind of angry. <laughs> it's true. I, it's sad to say it, but it's true. And I hope it's not true anymore. I think that we have done better in recent years in healthcare. I do think there's a lot more uh, women practitioners women cardiologists and and, and 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 women in different fields you know they said they're they're there because 
sometimes I felt like a woman's voice was like a waterfall. Yeah. You know, that's so interesting that you say that it is uh, medical school classes now are about 50, 50, which is, yay. I know it's, that is cool. And I think the other piece of this too, you know, we're kind of edging, we're, we're around the edges of all types of care areas that need to be opened up, but the caregivers have to be representative of the people they're caring for as well. They, patients need to see themselves providers that are giving care, be it a woman, be it, you know, a black man, physician, you know, you know, uh, someone who understands different religions. It, there's just so much more work that needs to be done to make sure that there's equity across the board in delivery. Yes. We're doing better, but we have, you know, we still have a ways to go. Yeah. No, that's now CMS just uh, put something out about priorities around health equity. Um, so now that health systems are going to be measured on how well they're addressing the disparities in health, we'll really start to see some change, I hope. Yeah. You, having been you know, an advocate for going on 30 plus years now, you've probably seen a lot of improvement, improvements. You mentioned Obamacare and the HITECH Act to get you know, medical records more streamlined. Such a huge help. And they don't have to drag the suitcase anymore. Yes, yes. And, and timeliness, you know, to be able to get that test result, that could critical test result that could have saved Googie's life. You know, a lot of, you know, mother couldn't really deal with the patient portal because she had gotten too sick, but I was able to do it. I was her advocate. I was her medical power of attorney. So I was able to use that patient portal with the, with the, I had to do, they weren't all linked where she was in North Carolina. The doctor wasn't necessarily linked to the hospital, but I did the hospital one. I did the doctor one. And so many times, and I do want to give a shout out to pharmacists you know, who can play a great role. There were so many times when mother was overprescribed and they didn't realize what the other one was doing. And the pharmacist had that thing in her computer that went bing, 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 red light, red light. So it is that communication. When the communication wasn't there, I had to do it and I had to connect it and I had to bring those pieces together. So it's really nice that we're making progress. And if the systems can talk to each other, because everybody kind of has a different patient portal care system sharing records. And we have HIPAA, you know, so I know that HIPAA is important. But also felt like sometimes that they would hide behind it. And I had to kind of get serious with a few doctors in North Carolina and say, my mother has a PhD. She doesn't need to wait for you to get a time to call you. The, the results go into the portal and I read the results to my mother. The, there was a, a little bit of a, I would call it patronizing attitude that, you know, the doctor wants to deliver that. And I'm like, well, she, she is a full faculty and she has her mind. And so she gets to say, and, you know, we don't need a delay of, of, of five days while you're getting enough time to sit down at your desk and call. I know because she was having a lot of problems with her. Um, she had to get injectifers, you know, because she would have, um, uh, you know, her blood counts would be low and she had to get transfusion once, but infusions several times. And so, you know, she was smart and we could look at that numbers and she could see, she could feel her symptoms that she was sliding and, and we could see the test results, you know, so we could, we could move quickly if we needed to get her there. You know, she used to say everything happens on a Friday. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And it's, and it, it was true. You know, it's really, you do not want to check into a hospital on Friday. 
Oh my gosh. The Lewis Blackman story. That's the biggest uh, nights and weekends. And, and later in the week, that is not when you want to be in a, in a house. Yeah. So there was many times that we would just hold on to get in there on Monday. Yeah. And that's got to change. You should be able to go into any care facility at any time and get safe, high quality care. So that's, there's still work to be done. Um, you mentioned rural care and the challenges that you've seen in Georgia compared to... Well, it was very difficult for me when mother started to get very ill because, you know, here was my husband with this terrible situation. Top of the top, UCLA, bam, everything. Such good outcomes, you know, and I'm used to that level. And so when mother got sick and I was here going to the hospital here and it was like, oh, well, you know, we're, we close early on this day and that day. I was just apoplectic. And then I got so kind of loud that the, the hospital was a little bit, you know, they got scared of me and patient records a little bit. But I said, listen, you know, I'm not doing this to be mean, but, you know, my mother has me. What about all the other people in this hospital that you're caring for? Because I can see I can see these, you know, we're in the, she was in the mountains of North Carolina, Appalachian State University is where she taught for years. And, you know, I'd see all these mountaineers coming into that cancer center, into that hospital. And I'm thinking they do not have big, loud, bossy Clorinda. Oh, my God, I'm so worried for them. And I would say stuff like that to the administrators at the hospital and to uh, particularly the woman who ran patient records. I'm like, you've got to do this for these test results got to get in the portal. Come on, be, be with us. And, and, and I will say, um, because now I spend my summers in, in Boone and that, that the care has progressed here. It, it has gotten better. There are more specialists and stuff, but I think rural communities are quite challenged. You know, when you only have one gastroenterologist, in, you know, a three county area. That's not high quality care. Where's your second opinion? Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> second opinion. Yeah. I'm a firm believer. I was born on March 3rd and three is my lucky number. And I'm a firm believer in a third opinion. And I find if someone is truly great doctors, they will say, oh, absolutely go get another opinion. And they are, they welcome it. So I don't think you should ever be uh, intimidated into you got to do this you have to do it now and there's and you know I mean certainly I guess there's emergency situations where you must get care now but if there if it's if it's not like that if it's not you're in a life-threatening situation and especially if they are wanting to operate on you I'm like take a minute before you do anything invasive and ask questions and get that person to come and sit with you and get that other opinion and another opinion well, I think you need to write a book in this area, but you have a lot of experience. And well, I, I feel with Spit Like a Big Girl, I've reached a lot of people and, you know, hopefully it's entertaining and educating. But these are you know, not that I have any kind of medical degree or anything, but I do have experience from the patient side. And I, I call myself a patient advocate now because I know how hard it can be to navigate that system, but how important it is for all of us to get a fluency in dealing with the medical system, because at some point you are going to be involved in a life of care. It came to me early. It happened to me early, but it is going to come to all of us. Somebody in your family is going to have a car wreck. You know, somebody's going to have a stroke. It will happen. It's not if. And so if you can 
keep your wits about you and keep calm and carry on, as they say, you know, it helps. Well, I, w- I appreciate you being here today and sharing all this. Um, we're going we're gonna to share some clips at the end of like a big, big girl, but I just want to close, come full circle. How's Clara doing now? Where is she now? So great. She's living her best life in a group home, as we used to say, in a house with friends. And they have activities. Um, she is, is so well cared for. In COVID, they had zero cases. And you know how it spread through care homes. Yes. Wow. And there was a lot of, in, in her care home in Thousand Oaks, California, zero. They kept her safe. That staff, amazing. So I, I, you know, there there are great people doing great work. We need more of them and we need more access for everybody to have these services. But I'm so grateful that Clara had all these services, that early intervention. And now here as an adult, she has the access to the group uh, home facility so she can live her most independent life. Lucky girl, she landed with the right mom. Thanks again for being with us today. Well, I feel lucky. I learned a lot. I'm a better person for being her mother. I'm a better artist. I'm a better actor. I'm a better writer. Everything. Very cool. All right. Until next time. Until next time. Stay tuned and hear a short clip from Clorinda's one-woman show, Spit Like a Big Girl called A Truly Moving Experience by the LA Times and Heartwarming by the Ventura County Star. Now, brushing Clara's teeth has always been a huge ordeal because among her many symptoms is a thing called sensory integration dysfunction. That just means her senses are intensified. She's tactily defensive, sensitive to touch, so <laughs> you'd squirm too if somebody tried to rub a bristly thing covered in goop all over your mouth. And in particular, this sense of the vestibular, that's the sense that tells us where our body is in space, where our feet are in relation to the ground. That vestibular is just off in Clara. The job of Clara can be daunting, but It's impossible to be depressed about Clara when you are in her physical presence. She is such a happy little soul. Like my daddy, Clara is just tickled to be her. I eek, I nunch, I tithed, I good girl, more juch, kitty dog, baby, hug, hug, Bonnie. Wow, I beautiful. C-L-A-R-A, 450-6222, yay, good job, thumb up, I love you, mama, okay, (laughs) bye-bye. She slows me down, and very often, I have perfect days with my imperfect angel. Years with top occupational therapists taught me to get organized. Not an easy task for your average actress. But these women taught me the importance of routine, consistency, using the same words, doing it the same way every day. And 
your three R's. Repetition, repetition, repetition. Let's take a bath. Clara wash, face first. Wash arm, one, two, three. Switch hands, other arm, one. Ah, ah, ah. Do you want to live in a house with friends? Clara do it. Two, three, yay! Good job! And they were right. It works. Now look. I don't go in much for organized religion, but I am a true convert to the church of occupational therapy. <laughs> Clara is like a glacier. You can't see her moving in the water. But through repetition, consistency, and sheer will, in two, three, or 10 years, her glacier has moved. And though we now know Clara is only 16 months old mentally, Clara is potty trained. It took 12 years. She can bathe herself, dress herself, and what is so amazing to me after years of wrestling with her, is that now sometimes in the middle of the day, she'll say, teeth, teeth. She actually wants to brush her teeth. <laughs> Clara and me, it was just the two of us. I had to get enough union acting jobs to keep the great Screen Actors Guild health insurance plan. I have played a hooker on TV. Y'all don't judge me too harshly. <laughs> I found many great caregivers. Christine, the young actress who lived with us and drove Clara to therapy appointments. Darlene, the grandmother who kept Clara overnight if I had, as actors often do, odd hours. And Ms. Vonsetta, who picked Clara up from the bus and got her addicted to... Yay, R. I needed professionals. This is not a child who could be left with a teenager down the block. <laughs>